Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, my time travelling friends. It's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here, and I am delighted to be back with you once more and looking forward to what we are going to be talking about today. We are going to be exploring the interesting, complex, puzzling relationship between two great Tudor icons. And that is, of course, Queen Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. And our expert today, who's going to help us unpick the nature of that relationship and particularly what happened, or should I say didn't happen, around the intended meeting between these two queens. Now, I find that to be a particularly fascinating event And as you will have heard in the podcast, uh, when I was uh, talking about, we were talking about the memorialisation of Mary, Queen of Scots, how often we see that meeting between the two queens actually happen when, of course, we all know it didn't. Um, But then the questions come forth. Why didn't it happen? What were the factors that got in the way? What would have happened if the two queens had met? Well, I had all these questions bubbling up for me and I wanted to put them to our expert for today. And that is Professor Maria Hayward from the University of Southampton. So why don't you follow me into the conversation and hear me pose some of these questions and try to get to the bottom of the nature of the relationship between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. So hello, Maria. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Hello, Sarah. It's lovely to see you. It's a delight to be able to talk to you again because I haven't seen you since we recorded uh, for the Field of Cloth of Gold 500 Virtual Summit, which, goodness me, must have been well, well over a year and a half ago now. We managed to get the recording in, didn't we, before the first lockdown? Yes, absolutely. I think we were very lucky with the timing of that recording. We so were. We so were. Um, But we're here today to talk about a different subject, which I have just introduced to folks, and that's the relationship between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, and in particular, this intended famous meeting, which never happened. And we're going to dive into that in a moment. But for those people who don't know you, perhaps you could introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you work and what your research interests are. Um, So my name's Maria Hayward. I'm based at the University of Southampton in the History Department um, and I predominantly work on the Tudor and Stuart courts uh, with a particular interest in in the stuff of of early modern life. So very much the the, the textiles, the gifts, the clothing, the horses, all of those sorts of things that made up um, the world that these individuals lived in. 
That's wonderful. And we that's what we had our conversation about, wasn't it, really, for the Field of Cloth of Gold? All the lovely glittery stuff that I love so much. Yes. <laughs> so, Maria, we are, as I said, just talking about Elizabeth and Mary. What is your interest in these two iconic queens? Um, well, I suppose it's twofold. Um, I first really came to look at Elizabeth and Mary together as part of my special subject, which I deliver on the Tudor court. So in the first semester, I look at the three Tudor kings. And in the second semester, I started off by thinking that I would look at Elizabeth and her sister Mary, but it suddenly struck me that actually it was going to be much more interesting and representative of what queenship was as a whole was like within uh, the British Isles, if I included Mary in this. Um, obviously, she's related closely to both of them, and her experiences just give us another insight into what it was like to be a queen regnant in the second half of the 16th century. And they're such different characters, aren't they? I guess they, they both shed such an interesting and very different light on what perhaps how they express their queenship. Absolutely. Um, so as you say, their, their characters are very different, but in other ways, you can see that there's a fascinating sort of competitive element between them. It almost reminds you a little of um, Henry VIII and Francis I, for instance, that they are similar and they experience the challenges of what it was to be a, a queen in a world that was ostensibly you know, ruled by men. Um, but yes, their own personal experiences in many ways are quite different. Obviously, their religion divides them. I suspect that's the most sort of the, the largest distinguishing feature between the two of them. But then on the other hand, you know, you look at other aspects of them and um, both of them have quite complex family backgrounds and, and family histories and relationships with their parents or sort of absence of parents. Mm, yeah, that, oh gosh, that would be a fascinating subject to dive deep into. It wouldn't be the psychology from the mm. early upbringing of both of them, but maybe that's for another day. Yes. I know <laughs> I know when we were talking about well, what aspect of, of these two queens would you most like to explore for our conversation? You know, you really honed in on this, um, the, the topic of this intended meeting between them both. And I was just curious about why that particularly? What What's so interesting to you about that particular kind of event or non-event of their reigns? Um, well, several things. Firstly, um, this event, if it had taken place, would have been hugely significant for both of them. Um, you know, if you think that for a monarch, they have no equal within their own country. So in order to speak to someone who knows exactly what it is to be a crowned sovereign you need to speak to someone without outside the boundaries of your own country and if you can do that to your own relative and someone of, you know who's a woman like you too then you can really see um why a meeting would have been something that would have appealed to both of them but beyond the purely sort of personal element of this uh, the other thing that interests me particularly about it is this whole idea of pageantry and how you use it to present a monarch to their people um, and in this case obviously it was going to be hugely important both to the English and the Scottish courts in terms of the way the two queens retinues interacted with each other and for both women of course it's early on in their time as queen 
Um, so neither of them have been monarch for that long. And I think on the whole, with Elizabeth's reign, we don't tend to focus on the early years as much as the, the latter part when she really fulfills the idea of what everybody thinks Gloriana should be like. Well, that's a really good bridge, I think, into me asking you about this proposed meeting, because there was one that was, was got quite close to happening, I think, and you're going to tell us all about that. So maybe you could tell us when the meet, you know, the, 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 near, the near meeting nearly happened and, and where was it planned for? And, and then I guess my final question around that is, what did the Queen's hope to achieve when they met face to face? Do we know? Um, so the meeting was planned for late summer, early autumn, 1562. Uh, specifically, it was going to be between the 20th of August and the 20th of September. It wasn't necessarily going to take up all of that time, but allowing for, you know, travel logistics mm -hmm. and everything else. That's why they had this month long window within which they wanted to meet. Um, in fact, we know that the weather was pretty bad that summer, so I imagine they probably needed some extra time to ensure that they could meet. The proposed place of meeting was York, which I think is a fascinating choice. You know, geographically, it makes sense because it's roughly equidistance between London and Edinburgh, and obviously a substantial city in its own right. Um, but of course, this is where Henry VIII had been due to meet James V, and of course, he doesn't arrive. Um, so there'd be some interesting sort of resonances within this city, and also, of course, as the sort of the heartland of the, the Yorkist part of the country as well, never the most comfortable for a Tudor monarch. So, yes, I mean, I was just thinking, though, I, I guess there would have been people who had would have been in Elizabeth's retinue who would perhaps have remembered Henry's progress. I'm just trying to think of the dates. We're talking, what, 1540, aren't we, for the Henry's progress, yes. I think. Yes. yes. Um, so I guess there may have been some people, as you say, who, who remembered that and remembered the fact that James hadn't turned up. And there must have been some nervousness about for the English on, on that front, wondering whether this, if Elizabeth did go to York, whether Mary would actually turn up. I imagine that certainly would have been one of the issues. Um, you know, if you look at this from the Scottish perspective, there's that sense of whether, you know, whether Henry had been overly optimistic to think that James would come. You can think of quite a good re few reasons why he might not have chosen to do so. Um, but yes, I think that is always going to be one of the anxieties, isn't it, that your your fellow monarch doesn't turn up and you're you're left <laughs> sort of thumb twiddling waiting for them. Yes, I mean the same, you mentioned the the kind of the parallels between Henry and Francis and of course there was that same tension wasn't there as they as they moved closer and closer to the field of cloth of gold, you know, would they turn up and if they did turn up was something awful going to happen that was, you know, it was almost, when you read the accounts it's almost palpable. Yes, absolutely. You know, the potential for, um, you know, a, a diplomatic embarrassment here is quite high. So, as you say, you would want to be absolutely certain and confident that, you know, both monarchs would turn up. And for both countries, it's hugely important that this is a success. Um, and certainly we can see that a certain amount of planning has gone into the visit, you know, in advance of the point where it gets called off. So we'll, we'll definitely come to that moment because that is fascinating. But I was wondering um, a couple of things, first of all, just on the back of the comment you were just making then about, you know, it was important to both countries that this went well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What did each country have to gain through potentially through this meeting? 
Well, from the English perspective, um, Elizabeth and, and Cecil, I suspect more so, the hope is that Mary will agree to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh. And in particular, um, this has already been signed by um, her representatives in essence um, in France, but of course it's absolutely vital that she ratifies it. And what's particularly important is that she renounces her claim to the English throne and she renounces her wish to be seen as Mary Elizabeth's heir. So that is what um, Cecil is, is hoping to achieve um, here. Um, in terms for, for Mary and for Scotland, um, I think that the, the aspirations are going to be slightly, slightly different. And in particular, of course, um, Mary is going to be want wanting full recognition from Elizabeth that she is the rightful queen. And of course, she wants to be acknowledged as Elizabeth's heir. And so this is where the tension comes between them, that it's, um, it's both a very personal meeting and a very politically sort of charged meeting. Gosh, yes, I can see that because they're almost diametrically opposed, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in particular, of course, um, Elizabeth has, in theory, the possibility to take matters, you know, to she could have acknowledged um, Mary as her heir. Um, and But if she married and had a child, of course, that would have then been put out of the equation. Um, but of course, which brings us back to the whole question of um, marriage and these two queens in terms mm. of the position it puts them in. Who initially proposed this meeting then? That's a very good question. Um, once we get sort of closer to it, I think most of the emphasis comes from Mary. I think Mary has more to gain from, from this in many ways than, than Elizabeth does from that perspective, in that um, Elizabeth has been queen longer she is in a slightly more settled environment in that she is you know a protestant queen in a protestant country whereas mary is a catholic queen in a ardently you know protestant reformist country um so yes i my my sense is that it comes from mary obviously later on there's the continuous stream of letters isn't there from Mary I mean obviously her yes. circumstances be are very different by uh, yes. the latter part yes. of her life um, at this point she is she is a reigning queen and therefore I guess a force to be taken seriously but Absolutely. nevertheless the impetus is still coming probably from Mary at this yes. stage. That is my feeling that it is Mary that is the the sort of chief mover behind this um, but that ultimately you know once sort of Elizabeth thinks about the idea, you get the sense that, you know, she too sees real merits in the meeting um, that are both personal and political. Um, so I think we can sort of break it down into, you know, these are two, two women, two young women, two relatives who have never had the chance to meet there is undeniably an aspect of, of curiosity. Mm -hmm meeting each other and obviously meeting a fellow queen regnant um, so I think there's that whole element of it but then there is also the political here that both of them have things that they want to um, gain out of an encounter and um, for both of them of course it's going to be important to be acknowledged by 
a fellow queen regnant. So, you know, it's, it's politically important, personally important as well in terms of, of this meeting. Um, and I think one of the things that comes out of the conversations that we see between um, Mary, Elizabeth and their mutual ambassadors is that the queens are invariably asking the ambassadors, you know, what's the other one like? You know, what what is she beautiful? Is she tall? Is she a good musician? What's her singing voice like? You know, there is that sort of competitive edge as well to the curiosity. It's so like Henry and Francis, isn't it? It's just a female version of it. And that's what, you know, as you're talking, that's what's coming to mind for me. Oh, my goodness. If they had actually met, there would have been so much comparison going on around their feminine traits and accomplishments, I've no doubt. Yes, yes absolutely. I think there'd have been a, a, a competitive dressing would definitely have, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the choice of jewels and who you would have to accompany you and, you know, you know, both the the glamour and the appeal of your retinue, the, you know, their their accomplishments, all of these sorts of things, I think, would have been on show. Um, and, you know, obviously it's personal, but it's also promoting the image of your court, your country. And so you talked before about the fact that there was some there were there are, there are actually records existing of the proposed meeting so it was a meeting that was taken seriously and there was planning that was underway maybe you could tell us about what we know from those surviving records about you know what was in the pipeline um, so on a practical level, for instance, uh, the mayor and aldermen of York were looking into the whole question of how do you feed all of these people? If you're envisaging that both Queen turns up with the retinue that they were allowed to, so up to a thousand people, that would probably mean about 2000 horses each. You know, this is a lot of mouths to feed. And so they were working on the basis that, you know, they might need, say, um, a thousand loaves a day, you know, the, all of the different types of things. So how much bread, how much beer, how much wine, um, and the whole sort of victualling. So the practicalities are being considered. Um, but also they've started to think about the entertainment. Um, so not surprisingly, both queens liked to hunt. They both liked archery. So they're envisaging those sorts of outdoor daytime activities. Um, but of course, one of the things that really takes a lot of planning are those um, evening entertainments. And we know that there is a plan for a mask or rather a sequence of masks that would have run over three consecutive nights. Um, and on the 10th of May, um, Elizabeth signs a warrant uh, for the Master of the Revels um, to have a large quantity of very expensive um, silks and linens delivered to him to make the costumes. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of detail about what those costumes might be, but you can see that um, in terms of acquiring these sorts of luxury goods that are difficult to source in suitable quantity, that you know they are thinking ahead in terms of, of getting this in place.
before we go any further, if you enjoy these podcasts, did you know that you can support my work by becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month? A link to find out more about this programme and the different levels of sponsorship available is included in the description associated with this podcast. And while I can't thank you in person, here's a big mwah to say a massive thank you from me. So now it's back to the show. You know I'm a bit obsessed with Tudor places <laughs> um, and um, we know that Henry VIII stayed at the King's Manor in York um, and do, do we have any record of where the queens were due to stay or has that, that not been recorded? No, that's certainly one of the things that there seems to be sort of less detail on that. But I suspect that the King's Manor seems like a very likely place that they would be using, as you say. Um, whether they were envisaging that both queens would stay there, um, certainly there was um, a suggestion that when Henry met James that, or the proposed meeting, uh, that Henry was based, as you say, within the King's Manor and that tents were going to be provided for James. Um, there doesn't seem to be much sort of uh, preparation on that sense. So um, unfortunately, accommodation is not one of the things that sort of appears to sort of be coming up in the documents as much. Oh, never mind. Never mind. We can imagine. And for those people who uh, don't know, the King's Manor or part of the King's Manor still exists in York, isn't it? It's very yeah. fittingly part of the University of York and the Centre for Medieval yeah. Studies. So you can you can go to York and kind of wander around and 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 touch a little bit of history. So that's just maybe uh, a top tip for people who are thinking of visiting York. Um, now back to you were saying that this meeting had personal and political aspects. So maybe we could just pause on the personal. And, and dive into a little bit about what Elizabeth really felt about Mary as a woman and a queen and, and maybe vice versa. Can you share your thoughts on that? In terms of how they thought about each other, I think one of the things that's really interesting is if we look at their letters and the way they sign themselves, I think that gives us a good indication. And, and Mary um, invariably refers to herself as being Elizabeth's cousin, but more importantly, she refers to her as being her sister. And we see Elizabeth do the same. Um, and again, I think that we can see here also a parallel between Henry and Francis, where they talk about each other as good king and brother. I think they stress that shared status through the idea of being sisters. Um, and in that sense, you know, they, 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 they are the closest in terms of being equal, in terms of their status. Um, I think that sister expresses that bond really well. And, and it, by using it, it suggests a degree of, of closeness that sometimes we sort of lose sight of when you just see lots of political letters being exchanged between various ambassadors. Yeah, I mean, put aside all the politics, I just think about these two women, which, who, as you say, were in the same situation, they were queens, you know, and they were related, there must have been an immense curiosity on each of their parts, regardless of any tension or, you know, uncertainty they might have felt, they must have been on one level, dying to meet each other, even Elizabeth. Yes, I think, I think both of them, I get that sense that whereas I think, 
um, Mary is much more open about her feelings and you get a sense of, you know, when the, the ambassadors refer, say, to when Elizabeth's letters ri arrive and, you know, she she holds them to her chest, she tucks them into the, 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 the sort of the, the bodice of her gown. Um, we don't get a sense of Elizabeth necessarily doing the same. But as you say, I think there is intense curiosity, but more than that, I think there is a genuine wish to meet. As, as we were saying, neither of them are overly blessed with relatives. That sense of not only is this someone who's got the same status as them, but they are related, which of course is part of the trouble as well in terms of the whole question of um, Elizabeth's throne. Yes, indeed. And and maybe then, then we can move on to unpick some of the um, political aspects of this meeting and particularly why it ultimately failed to take place. What are the factors that are involved in that? Um, ultimately, it comes down predominantly to politics in Europe, um, and in particular, um, religious tension in France. Um, France is essentially, um, or exclusively, a Catholic country, but it has quite a sizable um, reformist Huguenot element within it. Um, and um, obviously um, Cecil and others are keen to encourage Elizabeth to promote the Huguenot cause and support it. And when we have um, an incident with um, the Mary's Guise relatives um, involved in um, sort of various run-ins with the Huguenot population, um, once there is an outbreak of renewed religious war in France, it, is, it becomes very clear that it isn't going to be possible for Mary and Elizabeth to meet. So it's the, am I right then in saying it's the association of Mary's family, the Guises and their involvement uh, in this war with the Huguenots that, that creates all this tension and, and makes that is, that, is that what you're saying? Yes. So in essence, it is the fact that um, Elizabeth is, you know, a follower of the Reformed faith in a country which follows the same faith. Um, Mary, of course, is a Catholic monarch in a Reformed country in, in, in Scotland. Um, and this is the, the big challenge here that, you know, for Elizabeth to be seen to meet with Mary, a Catholic, when her Catholic relatives are um, leading um, sort of military action against the Huguenot population in France. That, that is where the tension comes. So it's very much um, linked to um, Mary's Catholicism. Now, there must have been, obviously, there were people around Elizabeth influencing her to not participate. Maybe you can give us a pen portrait of, of, of who those key people were. So Cecil is, I think, the most interesting individual in this context. Um, at the beginning, when the meeting is proposed, he is a supporter of it because he hopes it will bring about the ratification of the Treaty of Edinburgh. And if Mary relinquishes her claim to the English throne, so much the better. However, as things deteriorate in Europe, he, along with other members of the Privy Council, become very clear in the fact that... Um, Elizabeth needs to be seen to support the Huguenots in France and meeting her Catholic cousin wouldn't be sort of compatible with that. So do you think at the end of the day it was Cecil and the Privy Councillors who really put a stop to this? Um, so I suppose the other, you know, kind of the flip side of the coin of that question is, is 
if it had been left just to Elizabeth, would, would that meeting have gone ahead? Or do you think she would have chosen the same course of action and abandoned it? Um, I suspect she would have taken the same course of action and that she would have realised that it needed to be postponed. Um, I think one of the things that's very interesting is that when the, the meeting is postponed, it is only postponed. And the suggestion is that they will be able to meet in the following year in the same place, same sort of time of year. Um, and there is obviously the hope on the part of, of Elizabeth and um, those in her council that um, this problem in France can be resolved in such a way that would allow Mary and Elizabeth to meet. Um, so I think that that's what's most interesting about this is that it isn't, as you say, it is, it is postponed um, and that they actually are sort of vaguely suggesting possible dates for that postponed visit. Once it becomes apparent that visit can't take place, then obviously it is very much sort of put on the sidelines until later in the 1560s. Yes, and then of course things change uh, completely for Mary Queen of Scots. And when do you think that the idea was completely abandoned? Um, well, they are still considering the possibility of a meeting in um, 15... Uh, 66 and 1567 but as you say events happen very rapidly then for Mary um, and um, whereas at the first proposed meeting you know Mary and Elizabeth would very much have been meeting as equals um, by that later visit you know Mary's position has changed quite radically um, and now there are a whole variety of reasons why members of Elizabeth's council are really quite reticent about the idea of her meeting and obviously of course once Mary comes to England um, you know she is no longer um, in the eyes of the council um, a queen regnant obviously Mary of course would have a different views about the fact obviously that she'd been forced into abdicating her throne um, you know, then, of course, the meet any meeting between Elizabeth and Mary would be very, very different. And, you know, Mary, Mary wrote countless letters, didn't she, to Elizabeth during her imprisonment, kind of beseeching Elizabeth for them mm. to meet, but it never happened. And I was wondering, what do you think we can surmise about Elizabeth in the light of that intransigence to grant Mary, I suppose, an audience at that stage yes. as she was effectively a prisoner? So once um, Mary is um, being held um, in England, it makes the situation much, much changed. Um, in part, Elizabeth gets rounded by uh, not travelling anywhere near where um, Mary is resident, sort of to be able to sort of politely avoid the question of meeting her. Mm. But of course, uh, in many ways, the things that made um, their relationship complex before uh, haven't necessarily changed hugely in as much as um, Mary is still hoping that she might be restored to her crown. James might not have agreed to that idea, but, you know, she is still hoping that it would be possible for her to recover her Scottish crown and to unite it, ideally, with the English crown 
Um, so, you know, it's, he's going to make it a very complex um, position for Elizabeth. Um, and because Elizabeth hasn't married, married, she hasn't resolved the whole question of the succession. The longer this goes on, I think the harder it's going to get for her to meet Mary. Um, plus, I think one of the things that's often mooted by a range of historians is that, you know, um, I imagine she might have been slightly... Um, disquieted by how she might respond to Mary because I think it's one thing receiving letters and as you say they are passionate highly persuasive letters that Mary sends I think if you were to meet that person in in the flesh and to then have to say no I am not going to help you I'm not going to uh release the sort of the severity within, within which the constraints within you with, within which you are held um, I imagine that that would be very difficult to do. And so uh, she opts for the route of um, denying the meeting to sort of just avoid placing herself in that difficult situation. I think it's a, an, a, a, it's, it's a long apart. It's in character, in other words, with a woman that used vacillation as a means of avoiding making tricky decisions in other aspects of her, her life. So just moving on to a slight, couple of slightly different questions to round off our interview today, if I may, Maria. I'm thinking, yes. first of all, I'm forward, fast forwarding to the end of Mary's life where she gets involved with these plots uh, to yes. overthrow Elizabeth. And obviously she yes. knew what she was doing and she must have known that there were risks in that. And I've always wondered whether she just got to the stage where she was just fed up of being a prisoner and she almost risked, preferred to risk dying a martyr and you know forcing Elizabeth's hand rather than just languishing in obscurity in some drafty English castle somewhere you know forsaken by her own country and her own son do you think psychologically that's where she got to or am I just reading too much into it that is a really interesting interesting question and one that is very very difficult to answer however I don't think she ever gave up her belief in that you know that she had been the rightful queen of scotland and that you know she was deposed and of course we never can get round also the fact that um you know henry's um decisions to declare mary and elizabeth illegitimate meant that um for all of catholic europe um Mary was the legitimate monarch for the throne. You know, Elizabeth was a was a, a us, an illegitimate sort of usurper of that of that place and that role. Um, and so I think that that would have always been part of it in terms of what kept her sort of, I suppose, what maybe what sustained her um, during that time of of imprisonment. Um, but yes, it, it's. You could imagine that, as you say, if you've been imprisoned for that long, that, um, you, yes, you might feel that a reckless uh, act is, is worth, worth it in terms of, um, because she was being kept in increasingly um, unpleasant conditions, her health was deteriorating. Um, yeah. 
So, difficult. Yeah, no, and we'll never know, of course, but no. um, interesting to muse on these things. But what you're basically saying is, you know, that in Mary's mind, she was always the rightful queen and, and that never changed. And so, you know, the likelihood is that was the, the main impetus, but maybe there was a bit of an act of desperation <laughs> thrown in as well. Yes. And also, I think there's an element of that, you know, there are all of these individuals out there who are, you know, she gets drawn into these these plots. She becomes, obviously, she's the logical focal point for them. Um and in one sense, whether she wanted them or not, it's very difficult once these things are underway, I imagine, to extract yourself from them as well. So, um, but yes, you know, this is a woman who, you know, wasn't afraid of taking action. You get that sense during that her, her short reign, you know, in, in, in Scotland, that um, she was probably a more active queen in terms of, um, than, than, than Elizabeth in, in some respects. So. Now, a totally different question to end off our chat today. Um, and as I said before, you know, the Tudor Travel Guide were totally into Tudor places here. So I wanted yes. to ask you, what's your favourite location to that's associated with Mary Queen of Scots? Um, well, that is a really interesting question. And um, I hope that you are going to permit me um, a place in Scotland rather than in England. Of course choice for this being that I think as as you were saying none of the places that she spends her time in in England are those that she would associate with with any happy happy memories um, um possibly I suppose other than her visits to Buxton to take the water for her for her health um but no in terms of thinking about places um I would think that um just in terms of places that I've find um fascinating um i would think that loch leven castle is a really interesting one um you know to a modern visitor it is a remarkably romantic setting but i suspect for mary um you know a place that she's imprisoned after the rebellion after her marriage to bothwell um and where she's held prisoner i imagine this would not have been one that was uh, full of happy associations for her so um, I think probably in that respect, Falkland Palace is um, somewhere that um, is a particularly nice place to think about her. You know, this is where she, in those early years of her reign, so at the time of this proposed visit, um, this is where she would have been um, holding her court, um, playing tennis, uh, real tennis, um, riding, hunting, hawking. Um, um, and so I, I think that that is... Um, where I would I would choose. Well, you've chosen two absolute beauties there because many people will know I went to Scotland in August this year and actually I would have put Loch Leven right at the top just because it is just so beautiful and so romantic and and you're quite right Falkland is such a uh, it's such a pretty little town and mm. the, the palace you still get a lovely sense don't you of the architecture and the yeah. It's just a it's just a beautiful scenic place. So what great choices. Good. So thank you so much, Maria, for um, talking to us today about Mary and Elizabeth and this the, 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 this meeting that never took place and helping us unpack just why that was the case. Really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. 
So that concludes this extra episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show in a week that we remember the life of Mary, Queen of Scots. I hope you have enjoyed both of the episodes that have looked at very different aspects of her life. Well, with that, we shall say goodbye for this week and you can look out for the next Tudor History and Travel Show travel essentials which will be coming your way in a couple of weeks and then of course I will be back with the main show at the beginning of March and we will be touring the wonderful the glorious the romantic Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Happy time travelling.